Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Well, I uh, took a little bit of time this morning to worship with the gang out in the atrium. They did not know that. Um, and I got to tell you, uh, there's various reasons people need to be in the atrium. Sometimes it's children's issues. Sometimes they're just still kind of getting their feet wet, and there can be a lot of different reasons. But I was really impressed with the degree of engagement that is happening out there, that, that those of you who are out there listening right now, wherever you're at here, um, that you guys were engaged as you were. I just find that interesting uh, and positive. A uh, couple of quick announcements. First of all, last week was just great. I just enjoyed tremendously, and all those who made that possible with cooking the food to the music to everything else, it was just a great, real, wonderful launch for us. Um, there's something else coming up, and that is the garage. If you are a man, we have something coming up for you that's a new thing for us in men's ministry. It's on October the 9th. And we're welcoming you to come along to this, to bring a friend to this. Um, it's going to be a really outstanding event. So if you are a man, I want to make you very clear this is the place you should be on October 9th. If you are a woman and you happen to have any kind of a man in your life, you need to pound on them as hard as you can to be at this October 9th. We'll return them to you in better shape than when they came, okay? So we'll be improving them. So you want to improve your guys, send them this. Um, otherwise, you can continue doing what you usually do to improve them by yourself. Um, <laughs> Which is okay. We accept it. We accept it. Um, we began last week a conversation that was based on a passage of Scripture, and it has to do with the biblical worldview. And part of what I was highlighting is the fact that, that studies have shown that 51%, they vary sometimes by a few points, but 51% of this country identifies as Christian. But only 6% of that 51% have a biblical worldview. In other words, how they view the world, how they interpret the events around them, what shapes their life. Only 6% of the alleged Christians have that perspective. I discussed with you a little bit about how through the 60s, 70s, and 80s, through um, a number of programs from what was called church growth programs to uh, uh, the seeker movement to a number of other things, how there was an explosion of evangelism. And, And so many people came into the church in that season of the time. But discipleship was minimized oftentimes. And so it was good that evangelism happened. That's something that we are constantly engaged in and wanting to bring people to an understanding of of Christ and of faith, and that's something that we want to do every single day that we meet. But without discipleship, without an understanding of what it is that they've committed to, um, it can breed a tremendous amount of spiritual ignorance. 
and can create oftentimes spiritual orphans. In fact, Jesus himself said that that three-fourths of those in his parable of the sower, the different ground that was there, three-fourths of those who hear the word of God will ultimately reject it for one reason or another. And so this series that we're going to spend time on over the next um, couple of decades, the next couple of months, is a very personal series. The entail of the, of, the, of the series is the challenge of a biblical worldview. And today, I want to begin with, what is your source of truth? But this is a very personal series. Each week, I want to ask you, what is it that you believe? And how does that belief change you or affect the life around you? And it's entitled The Challenge of a Biblical Worldview because I want to challenge you each week on what it is that you actually believe. But it's also entitled that because holding a biblical worldview in our society today is challenging in and of itself. To hold on to and to maintain um, a biblical worldview in the midst of the preconceived uh, concepts that we have or that have been inculcated to us by our culture. So the challenge is multiple. To begin this conversation today, I want to discuss with you Harvard University. That's a natural progression, isn't it? Harvard University was founded in 1636. Interesting thing about Harvard University, um, it was named after its first benefactor, uh, a Puritan clergyman or pastor named John Harvard. It's the oldest institution of higher learning in our country and one of the most prestigious in the world. When Harvard began, the Massachusetts Colonial Legislature authorized its founding with this phrase, according to the history, quote, dreading to leave an illiterate ministry to the churches when our present ministers shall lie in the dust, we are establishing Harvard. In other words, we're not going to trust the churches necessarily alone to educate people on the things of faith but particularly our ministers. We want to make sure that our our pastors are well-educated in the things of faith. So Harvard was originally established to train Christian ministers. That was its purpose. To make sure that we didn't end up with illiterate pastors who in turn would end up with illiterate congregations in the biblical sense of things. There were some instructions that they had, rules and precepts. And I'm not going to go into the first one, but the second one goes like this. Let every student, this is for Harvard, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal. And they quote John 17, 3. And therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning and seeing that the Lord only giveth wisdom, let everyone seriously set himself by prayer in secret to seek it of him. And they quote Proverbs 2.3. This is Harvard. Their third instruction was, everyone shall so exercise himself in reading the scriptures twice a day that he shall be ready to give such an account of his proficiency therein, both in theoretical observations of language and logic and in practical spiritual truths as his tutor shall acquire, according to his ability, seeing the entrance of the word, Bible, in other words, giveth light, it giveth understanding to the simple. And they quote Psalm 119, verse 130. This is Harvard. The motto of the university adopted in 1692 was Veritas Christo et Ecclesiae, which translate is this from the Latin, 
Truth for Christ and the church. So the original motto, and still officially, is truth for Christ and the church. And if you go into Harvard, I'm told that you can see this still inscribed into a lot of the dorms and the buildings, into Memorial Church that's on location there. As time has gone on, the motto, truth for Christ and the church, a place that was devised to be a place to instruct people in the word of God and to train up ministers has now been reduced to strictly this. Their, t- their title is only truth. Their motto is only truth, veritas. They've dropped the other portion. Why is this of any interest? The history of Harvard, the, the background, where it came from, and, and, and how it started as a place of learning the scriptures and inculcating all that to where it's at today. Why? Because they just established a new chaplain, which is great. They've got a brand new chaplain at Harvard. He is an avowed atheist. He's openly atheistic. So you have a progression from an entity that was established and came to prestige and, 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 and impact by Christians for the Bible, for an understanding of those things that progresses down the line and their statement is still truth, but their chaplain is an atheist who denies anything to do with God. This is simply an expression of, of where we have moved as a country and as a church. As Mickey had said um, not too long ago in what he shared a couple of weeks ago, and I thought Mickey did a brilliant job uh, a few weeks ago and then, then Brian following that up. But he had a slide which I want to put up. It says, truth is that which conforms to fact and reality, he said, external to people, objective and binding in everyone. That was what truth always meant. It's what conforms to fact and to reality, external to us and objective. We conform to it. It does not conform to us. But that has been changed now into um, postmodernism, which is my lived experience is um, basically independent of all else. It's the thing that's above everything else. Brian had done a brilliant job of, of talking about social media and the impact and, and the way those things can affect us so much. And I was listening recently, if you haven't viewed the, the, the movie, um, The Social Dilemma, not The Social Network, The Social Dilemma, which is a brilliant analysis of what is happening in social media from the individuals who started social media. Like Brian, they're no Luddite. They're, they're individuals who are soaked in this, the ones who are established and warning us of some of the aspects of it and saying how you're a product and you're being sold. And one of the um, authors of all this stuff said, it's the gradual, slightly imperceptible change in your behavior and perception that is the product. They make money by changing what you do, how you think, who you are. And it's a gradual change. It's slight, but over time, the desire to change and transform you. There's a cartoon I came across uh, a couple of months back that to me captures a little bit of this, though it's related mostly to newspapers and things of this nature, and it has to do with the Internet. I don't know if you have that up there, but it's two hikers that are kind of out in the desert, and they're, they're looking everywhere for where they can find things. It's the information desert, and the one lady's saying, there's not a single local newspaper for 500 miles, and then you've got this Internet cesspool that has all these dead animals around and bubbling garbage stuff, and he says, okay, then I'm drinking this. What is your source of truth? If it's the internet, it's constantly changing and shifting. What is your source of truth? You know, it's funny, when we would play Scrabble, and some of you guys have still played that game, and you remember when you play Scrabble and someone would invent a word? <laughs> Maybe it was you, often it was me. Oh yeah, Fluxmoxon, that, that has to do with something, you know? 
And when that would happen, you know, there wouldn't be a fist fight. There wouldn't be a, you know, paper, rock, paper, scissors. You know, what did we do in that case? We went to the dictionary because that was our source of authority. If it wasn't in the dictionary, then you lose. That was a source of truth for us. That was our authority. And the thing that's interesting about that is that the dictionary is constantly changing anyways. You know that? But the Word of God, we're told, does not. It's constant. It doesn't change. It doesn't adjust to things. Matthew 28, the scripture that launched this whole process, says, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. It's imperative. Therefore, go. Then it says, make disciples. Not just converts, not just those who walk an aisle, not just those who, who raise a hand, all those things which were developed in the last 150 years for the most part. But make disciples of all nations. We're not to have any national identity that overrides our Christian faith or ethnic identity of any kind. It's all nations. I have more in keeping with a devout Chinese individual, though politically I may be extreme odds with them, than I do to many of my own countrymen, perhaps. Or to someone from Britain, or to someone from Africa, or to someone from Canada. That's stretching it. (laughs) But we'll accept it. Of all nations, then baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. And then teaching them, teaching them to disregard everything I've commanded you. Anybody want to react to that? Are we reading the same thing here? Are you even awake right now? Uh, and, and teaching them to... Okay, let's try that one more time. Teaching them to... Obey everything I've commanded you. And sure, I am with you always. The presence of the Holy Spirit is constantly with us and guiding us. And so we're to teach people those things that were taught to the apostles that have been true for thousands of years that never change by the culture of the society. These things that are true that define reality. Not just have someone say, I'm a follower of Jesus and and, and I've got a fish on my car and everything else like that. (laughs) But that there's actually lifestyle change. What is your source of truth? For the, for the follower of Jesus Christ, it's supposed to be the Bible. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed or inspired and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. It's not a book that arrived in complete form at one point in history. Instead, the Bible was written over a period of some 1,500 years by a variety of authors. I could stand here today and and try to make a definitive statement to um, the validity of the Bible, its authorship, its history, how archaeologists have found it to probably be the most dependable source of truth for archaeological studies, how its truth has stood up over time. But this is not supposed to be um, a defense of the faith. It's not a defense of the Bible. It's not an apologetics issue. In fact, this is meant to be not a defensive conversation, but to be frank, a very offensive conversation in the sense of wanting to take ground, but also in the sense that inevitably there are those that will be offended. 
I go to all the manuscripts and all the proofs of this through time that have aligned that this Bible has been more protected in its translation over 2,000 years of time than any other document that's ever existed. Most importantly, though, it offers a worldview, and a worldview is a framework for which we view reality and make sense of life and the world. So if we're going to do that, let's take a look at what just one of those could be. No Christian author in the 300 years after Christ condoned abortion. Not one Christian author in the 300 years after Christ condoned it. The earliest source we have is something called the Didache, and it commands, Thou shalt not murder a child by abortion or kill that which is begotten. There's another writer, Barnabas, that has a similar guide. And um, says at one point, you won't slay the child by procuring abortion, or again, she'll destroy it after it's born. And this latter phrase is referring to the ancient Greek and Roman practice of abandoning newborn babies to die in unpopular areas. They would expose the child on the hillside and let animals drag it off or let the exposure of the elements kill the child. They did this um, for a couple of reasons. One is if it was the sex that they didn't want, usually a female, then they would expose the child and let it die rather than raise it up. Or if there was a perceived health defect. Christians in those early centuries were the ones that went to those hillsides. We were the ones that went to those hillsides and took those children and adopted them. In fact, orphanages were began by Christians. Finding these children and adopting them. For 300 years, this was the view of Christianity. And then something changed, not really fully. In fact, Christians for 2,000 years that have been orthodox and that hold a biblical truth have been opposed to abortion. And this conversation is not about abortion. But I'm taking a point in term to have you face something and confront something. Now, what changed in the 300-year mark? Well, the 300-year mark is something similar to what we've experienced in our country in the last couple of decades. Around 300 or so, a guy named Constantine was struggling for the emperorship. He has this vision of a cross, and so he paints a cross on all the shields of his guys, and they win the day, and he becomes emperor, and he attributes that to the Christian God. And so he now declares that instead of the one million die hard, and literally many of them did die hard to accept Christ in those first three centuries, was often a death sentence in itself. You lived under that threat because the persecution was that intense. But suddenly now, that one million diehard intense Christians are joined by 40 million others, pagans, who are now told they are Christians. And that floods in, and increasingly there's a dilution of thought and idea that continues on for centuries afterwards. We won't get into all the history of that. But historically, Christians have held to the belief in opposition to abortion from the beginning. It has been a core issue. Where do you get that from? Why would we think that? Because we look at the Bible as a source of truth, and we look in Psalm 139 that it says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. And all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. This is pre-birth. In Jeremiah 1.5, he's speaking to the prophet and, and, and saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. 
In Luke chapter 1, verse 41 and 44, Elizabeth hears about Mary and, and Mary having me being pregnant with Christ. And, and the baby, who is John the Baptist, leaps in her womb. And Elizabeth's filled with the Holy Spirit. And later, as she encounters uh, and has a conversation with Mary, she says, As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Scriptures like this and other ones are why Christians have for millennia held that abortion is wrong. Now here's an interesting thing, and one of the reasons why I bring it up as, a, as an issue. It's not because of what's going on in Texas. I don't I have no concerns in the political aspects one way or the other of that. But there was an article in the Washington Post this past week or so. The Washington Post, L.A. Times, and uh, um, uh, New York Times. You know, the New York? Yeah. New York Times, yeah. Probably the three most um, anti-Christian, non-Christian, let me use the word newspapers instead of the word I want to use, um, that you'll find. And so to have the Washington Post post an article that basically heads up by saying tighter abortion restrictions may really indicate the law is finally catching up to science. And the writer starts by saying Christian belief that life is ordained by God begins at conception. That's always been the view. And that is what drove a lot of the issues early on. He cites even certain scriptures and stuff, but says that today that's changing. And follow where I'm going with this. He says, Today's, Doctors today can repair or stabilize an unborn child's defects in the womb from tumors on the lungs to holes in the diaphragm to spina bifida to various heart defects in the womb. High-tech software that produces images in the earliest weeks of fetal development are astounding in their detail as these small humans are visibly, as the psalmist put it, knit together. This is the Washington Post. In this age of in utero medical miracles, the notion that the difference between termination or the gift of life is whether a baby is wanted seems increasingly absurd. It's a standard that we wouldn't tolerate at any other stage of existence. He goes on to say, I've long believed the best way to end abortion is not by changing the laws, but by changing hearts and minds. I agree with that. I'm not saying we shouldn't change laws, but people getting caught up with that as a passion, and, and, and then all the people here is that we're against abortion instead of the, the, the saving grace of Christ for those who have experienced that already, whether they were the men who drove them and caused it or the women that did it. And, and, it, and it, it keeps people out of those things. We've been given free will by God, and the reality is it is your choice. Every single breath you take, every action you do is always your choice. That's not the question. The question is, what choice will you make? Whether it's about this or about anything else, what is your source of authority? What is your source of truth that guides and shapes those choices, that shapes your perception and your understanding, that protects you from the lies? And just as a side point, uh, the original Roe and Roe v. Wade lied that it was a rape, and it wasn't. She lied, and there was a variety of other lies involved with that. It protects you from the lives and gives you a direction. But it's a changing of hearts and minds, not by force. He goes on to make this statement. Many people today will shrug off the edicts of God if they even acknowledge his existence. But science is sacrosanct. Ignore its precepts at the risk of, of, of nearly universal condemnation. Advances in prenatal technology make pro-life arguments more persuasively than the moral majority ever could. If the Supreme Court is indeed on the road to reversing Roe v. Wade, it may be less because the court has taken a hard right turn and more because after nearly 50 years, the law is catching up to the science. We're told today, follow the science. But not all, all things interesting enough, isn't it? 
And is your argument, Randy, that science is the best? No, my argument is that the science, after 2,000 flipping years, has finally caught up to where the Bible was at. My statement is that the Bible holds truths that are true and don't change. And we're fortunate when there are times when the science reveals something. The Big Bang is one of the best illustrations of Genesis that I've heard of, and that's a, that's a physics discussion and argument of how reality began. Again, this is not a discussion about abortion. I simply take one thing that is central to the arguments of many people here today, and I'm pulling that into this conversation to say, where do you stand? The Bible makes distinctive truth claims, and some of those are disturbing or offensive. But why is it that we'll accept one book that changes constantly as a definition of truth around us, but we won't accept the one that has stood the test of millennia? The Bible makes a number of truth claims. One of the central ones is about Christ. But let me stop for just a second and back up for a minute. There's a, there's a Hindu scholar that engaged a missionary to India whose name was Leslie Newbigin. And he shares this encounter that he had with his Hindu scholar to help Christians see the Bible as one story, the story of salvation. He says there was this one Hindu scholar who challenged Newbigin, saying this, I can't understand why you missionaries present the Bible to us in India as a book of religion. It is not a book of religion. And anyway, you have plenty of books of religion in India. We don't need it anymore. I find in your Bible, this Hindu scholar says, a unique interpretation of universal history, the history of the whole of creation, the history of the human race, and therefore a unique interpretation or view of the human person as a responsible actor in history. That is meaning of reality as a whole. Newbegin's response is this to us, saying there's nothing else in the whole um, religious literature of the world to put alongside the Bible. But we have fragmented the Bible into bits, moral bits, systemic theological bits, devotional bits, historical critical bits, narrative bits, and homiletic bits. When the Bible is broken up in this way, there is no comprehensive grand narrative to withstand the power of the comprehensive humanist narrative or worldview that shapes our culture. The Bible bits, if that's all you have, and not the comprehensive worldview that is empowering He said the Bible bits are accommodated instead then to the more all-embracing cultural story and it becomes the story, the humanist story that shapes our lives. That's a devastating statement that we've become so biblically illiterate, so unaware, so chopping up of these things to fit our own issues. Let me give you a little bit of an example I've been holding on to for a while. I had a... a, uh, um, text sent to me. Uh, this person's never sent me a text, I don't think, before. We've known each other for a number of years, but it's never sent me a text. And they sent me this text, and it's one of those memes or one of those pictures. Now, here's the picture. I've, I've, I've got it here, right? The, the, yeah, there we go. So, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the rider's name was Death. <laughs> I laughed out loud. I thought it was hysterical. And some of you are saying, okay, Randy, you're falling into your anti-cat ways again. I thought you'd renounce that way of sin and we're coming forth to embrace all animals as equal. Well, not quite, but that's another conversation. But, but what cracked me up about this is this. He's quoting a scripture. 
Now, if you know the scripture, this is hysterical. If you don't know the scripture, it's funny because, oh, it's a cat and it's death. But if you know the scripture, you're laughing on three deeper levels. So let me just ask you real quick, and this is not a heaven or hell that you're going to go or not quit choice, okay? How many of you have ever heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse? Okay. About 56, maybe 60% of us are How many of you know what the name of those four are? Okay, that just really cut us down pretty dramatically, okay? Now, for some of us who are into sports, we're totally living in the past when the four horsemen were uh, a football group of football players that rode over everybody, okay? And some of the others who raise their hands, the 60% are saying, well, I've, I've heard it referenced maybe in a movie or something else like that, and so I... The four horsemen of apocalypse are referenced in Revelations, and that passage, if you put it back up there again for just a second real quickly, um, is, is just a quote directly. I looked and behold a pale horse, and the rider's name was Death. You know one of the names. The other ones were, were, were Famine, uh, War, and uh, um, Pestilence. And so all those things, it was War, Death, Famine, and Pestilence. And so those are the four names. So if you know the scripture, okay, here's the thing. The whole benefit of knowing the Bible is that you get a lot more fun out of things like that, okay? That's the whole purpose. Let me take you one step further, though. It's not that you can appreciate things more. Let me give you an uh, inspirational Bible quote that was in a devotion, evidently. It was actually in a devotional. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. That just causes you to want to follow God more closely, doesn't it? It should, right? Yeah, Okay. Unless you know your Bible and you understand the context of this. If thou therefore will worship me, all shall be thine. Yes, God. No, because that's Satan tempting Jesus. And it got into a devotional for Christians. What is our source of truth? Well, the Bible's been misused so much. It's just—it's it's done so much damage over the years. There's an interview for a recent book that apologist Timothy Paul Jones wrote in 2020. And um, he was asked at one point this. In your final chapter, you talked about how one barrier to the faith is the way Christians, both throughout history and today, have used the Bible in ways that are abusive to the Bible. Good argument. So many today find it difficult to trust a book that was used to justify the Crusades or used to justify chattel slavery. How would you answer the individual who's struggling with that objection? Jones' reply was this. He says, well, my answer is the Beatles' White Album. (laughs) Yeah, my same thing. It's like, what? That was a classic album, very, very much of the Beatles. And it says, he goes on and says, as we all know, the Beatles' White Album, especially the song Helter Skelter, ringing a few bells, was used by Charles Manson as an excuse for the Manson murders. He felt like the White Album was calling him to commit all those murders. And yet nobody has ever indicted Paul McCartney for those murders. And the reason that they haven't is because the fact that the misuse of the White Album doesn't reflect on its creator. Just because the White Album was misused doesn't mean the creator of it was at fault. I think we have to help people recognize that the Bible is used to justify terrible things but was it rightly used for those things? What is your source of truth? We've made Fox, CNN. You're driven by one political party or another. But if we are followers of Christ, if that's the mantle that we claim, 
then our view of reality is to be shaped and defined by the unchanging word of God. That is the meaning, in large part, of being a Christian. You can examine something like abortion and take your due diligence to look at the roots and the history and all that stands behind that so that you can really come to an understanding as to why the Bible condemns it. Or you can even get so ramped up after you've done that as to make that your cause to the degree that you'll kill people over it, verbally or even physically. But the Bible is to shape our worldview. It's to guide us even in how we handle people that we disagree with deeply. The central issue of the Bible is probably the most offensive at all. John 17, 3, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That was not a big problem when all those people joined, those millions of people joined the church by Constantine's demand in 300, some 18 or so A.D. They all added Jesus to the list, no problem. I'm still worshiping Thor and Zeus and all the rest. Jesus just one more there. Jesus loves me and I can still sin as much as I want. As just as much as Zeus loves me and I can sin as all I want. There was no transformation and change. There was no subtraction. There was just addition. So this passage we could live with maybe, but John 14, 6, which incidentally is inscribed at the entrance of both entrances, main entrances to this church. And that was deliberate. I never saw that. Yeah, that's good because you're meeting people and you're looking up. You didn't look down. And that's all right. Look down. Just make sure you don't bump into somebody you come in next time, all right? But John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I want you to read this with me. Um, Just the no one comes to the Father except through me. So I'll, I'll help you out. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now I want us to read that again, but I want you to put an emphasis on the me. Okay? No one comes to the Father except through me. That is a declarative statement. That is an offensive statement. Jesus, as the sole way to salvation, is a problem today because society says there are many different ways and only an incredibly bad person, an immoral person, would say that there's only one way. But if our worldview is shaped by scriptures like this, then we have to stand in those moments and say, no, it is truth. And it shapes how I see things and how I do things. This morning I've not tried to defend or be exhaustive because my assumption is that the majority of you tuning in or part of this right now are stating to be Christians. That at some point in time you cross a line. And for those of you that are not, I'm hoping that by being as direct as I can that you'll be intrigued, if nothing else, by the single salmon swimming upstream. But I ask you again, what is your source of truth? What is it that guides, defines, and shapes your life? Now, as we begin to wrap this up, I want to share with you something. My wardrobe today was specially chosen, obviously by a crack team. Um, I haven't had a, a weekends for like 40 years, at least not as a regular case, you know? couple of times I'll get those through the year when I'm on vacation. So I've tried to make the vacations that I have with my family be as full as they can for the time we have. I wheel and I deal and I use points and I use all sorts of incredibly clever ways to do that and achieve it. A couple of years ago, we were going to be in Portugal and Spain. 
And we transited through Amsterdam. We had an hour and a half layover in Amsterdam. And while we were in Amsterdam, um, I'm in the shop, and I see this shirt. Now, this is practically my favorite shirt. I really like this shirt. I like it because it's a pretty color. It contrasts nice with different variations of shades, and it has a lion, and I like lions. It's kind of an Aslan thing and all that and all, so I, I, just, I just like the shirt. So I bought this shirt, had it in my stuff, and, and about a week or two later, we're in Sevilla, Spain, or Seville, Spain, and I'm by myself, and I'm, I'm walking through the narrow streets, and I'm always just soaking in the history, just trying to catch what's going on and taking place. And there's others around, but not so many around. And then at one point in time, I turn a corner, and there's these five young men in their 20s, very well built, all of them about six foot with blonde hair, and, and I'm accosted by this gang. Now, when I say accosted, it wasn't physical. It was practically physical in the way they approached it. Because as I turn the corner, as they see me, these five young guys see me, and they turn, and they make an exclamation, like, freaking singing summer song, and I have no idea what they said. <laughs> and they're all excited to see me. And they make this thing, like, rah, 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 rah. Ah! I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and they just go away, just cheering and walking on their thing, and I'm going, like, going, what just happened? And I'm realizing, and I knew this, but it wasn't in my thinking at all. This happens to be the team shirt for the national soccer team of the Netherlands, of Holland. Now, I knew that, but I don't care. <laughs> I just like the shirt. And I realized after I walked away, these guys had seen me, and they, so you have to realize, football, as they call it, <laughs> soccer over there is like a religion. They thought they had found another member of their faith community. And so what they said to me in Dutch was some variation of, Go Tigers! And I'm like, uh, Because I don't care. I just like the shirt. Now I've thought since then and having that experience I should be responsible and I should explore the soccer club and so I've read a full paragraph. <laughs> I know they're like one of the winningest teams ever but I have no idea the team stats don't care. I don't know a player that's on the team. I don't know where they're, I don't even know where they're based. All I know is I like the shirt. <laughs> My devastating concern and I don't care about other churches, but in this church, that we don't have those of us who are gathered in this place who are strictly wearing the shirt of Christianity, that we're attending or we're doing certain things just because we like how it looks on us or we like how others react to us, but we have no understanding of the faith that, that the emblem declares. For a soccer club, I could care less and I will keep wearing the shirt because I like it. And it affects my salvation not one whit. But for those of us who at some point in time made a decision to put on the shirt of salvation, that we decided to follow Christ, but we don't pursue that in any way. It was strictly for our convenience. It was for our fire insurance. It was for whatever there is, but there's no devotion. There's no love. There's no passion for Christ. We are living a lie, and it is a falsehood. 
If things like just the one item we touched on today here that has been held by Christians for 2,000 years on the issue, if if that alone offends you, that that shuts you down in this conversation, my God, what's going to happen with the next couple of weeks? What is your source of truth? Because that source of truth will define how you interpret everything in your life. We accept a changing, constantly shifting book to rule us in a game, but this is no game. We need to stop being in the stands and just cheering. We need to be on the field. We need to understand the faith. We need to become literate in understanding of those things. And we have things that can apply towards that. We have Detroit Bible Institute. We have a, a whole thing that's focused on, on just, you know, things that have, that have been, that have been de, you know, discipleship, classes, studies. This whole thing's back there. That's one way that you can get involved if you don't feel equipped yourself. There's things you can do. But the first thing, more than anything else, I think is just that you stop on any of the major things that you're being pressed upon in your own life or that other people are pressing on, and you stop and say, wait a minute, how does this line up with the Word of God? Well, it's really uncomfortable. It'll leave me on the outside. It challenges how I live. I can't live up to that. I'm going to stumble and fall, and we will until we rise again and rise again until eventually we succeed. But that's what it means to be a follower of Christ. What is your source? Father, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit in these closing moments would penetrate more deeply into hearts and minds, present and and, and absent even right now in viewing, more deeply than, than anything I've been able to say. Your Holy Spirit speaks in methods and ways that, that overcome certain objections that I can't in the moment of time given. So I pray, Lord, right now as we contemplate what our source of truth is? What is it that shapes our worldview? What what drives us? What focuses us, Lord, that that we'd be brought to a reminder of how we began maybe this journey to begin with? In the book of Proverbs, it says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but it leads to death. The psalmist comes along, though, in the 25th Psalm. I'm going to read this to you for the next... uh, number of weeks at the end of each service. Show me your ways, Lord, which implies a master or a ruler over us. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth. And teach me. For you are God, my Savior. My hope is in you all day long. I want to say one final thing here today, and I didn't say this in first, but I feel compelled in second. The subject today was to take a point of where Christianity has been at all this time and to see where increasingly signs of other things are catching up to that. But in the process of this, if you are someone who um, had an abortion or someone who facilitated that as a man and you struggle still with some of the guilt of that, if you've become a follower of Christ, don't let today's conversation renew that condemnation of you. You are free from that. Do not live under that. That is the beauty of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I just feel compelled to say that to you this morning. Father, I pray as we continue to explore and examine what our source of truth is, as we dig into this, God, that it would transform how we think and how we operate. 
I pray, Lord, that we not just use our, our reading and our listening and other skills that we could have into this that could apply, but that your Holy Spirit would come alongside us, illuminate your word, prompt us, guide us, let us engage in conversation. But Father, as we continue to move forward in this, challenge us on what our worldview is. And let us build on the foundation of your word, I pray. In Jesus' name we ask it.